we will consider as our text the first chapter of Esther 1, and uh, we'll read in preparation for that the words of Psalm 2, Psalm 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the word of the Lord, and let us as His people respond to it, and let us do so in the words of this very psalm. We'll sing from Psalm 2, 1, 2, and 4.
text for this morning's sermon will be Esther chapter 1. You can find Esther right after Nehemiah and before Job. Esther chapter 1. There we read the following. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of all the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the courts of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also the couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion." For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to Queen Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shathar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the king of Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, 
and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent a letter to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language and speak according to the language of his people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands firm and sure forevermore. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ in Providence, we have begun a series of sermons dealing with the book of Esther. And I don't know about you, but whenever we begin a new series, I always get very excited. And that's because as we begin to study a, a new section of God's Word, there's just so much opportunity. First of all, we're given the opportunity to ask all kinds of new questions. And being able to ask new questions means that there's the prospect of learning new things. Starting a new series means that once again, we're, we're privileged to have the opportunity to uncover the riches of God's Word as we dig deeply into it, and that is something that is just exciting. That's something that is invigorating. Ultimately, however, I think that the most exciting part of beginning a new series is that once again, we're faced with that extraordinary question, what is God going to do this time? What mighty works will He accomplish in the following pages? What lessons will those moments of revelation teach us about who God is and how He works in the lives of His people? And those are such exciting questions. They're exciting questions because ultimately there is nothing that is more amazing, there's nothing that's more encouraging than watching God work to accomplish His own purpose. There's nothing that's more incredible than watching God work to glorify His own name. There's nothing that is more encouraging than watching God work to gather His people and to call them to Himself and, and to lead them towards Him. Remarkably, however, it turns, out that it, it turns out that it is precisely this enthusiasm, an enthusiasm to see what God will do, it's precisely this enthusiasm that can make studying the book of Esther such a challenge. And perhaps that's something that you've already noticed this morning. And I say that because as we read through Esther chapter 1, there is something that is conspicuously absent from the passage that we read. What is absent from this passage is any specific mention of God. We don't read of Him anywhere at all as the setting for this story gets established. In fact, as we read through this chapter, everything and everyone we read of is decidedly secular. And so we might, we might find ourselves scratching our heads a little bit and wondering, well, well, wait a minute, where is God? And when is He going to make an appearance in this story? 
And what's more remarkable yet, brothers and sisters, is that these circumstances don't change as the story develops. Certainly, we're going to be interested, we're going to be introduced to some of God's people. We're going to meet Mordecai, and we're going to meet Esther along the way. But the reality is that God Himself never makes an appearance in this account. Throughout the whole of this story, God's name is never mentioned. Nothing miraculous ever occurs. God never speaks a single word, and not a single word is spoken to Him by anyone involved in this story. And that's not just remarkable, it's also something that we can find to be rather dispiriting. After all, we've, we've come to Esther with a great deal of enthusiasm. We've arrived with this level of expectation. We've come to see what it is that God will do, and yet as we thumb our way through the pages of this text, He's nowhere to be found. And it's not just an issue of having our enthusiasm, of having our excitement dampened. It's also an issue of having our focus shifted. Because as a result of making this discovery, our central question, it shifts from what will God do this time to the question of is God actually even present in this story? And brothers and sisters, let's, let's clear this up right from the outset. This is not a set of circumstances that should frighten us. We shouldn't be scared as we make these revelations. And, that is, and there are two reasons for this. First of all, we want to acknowledge that the book of Esther has been included as part of the fabric of God's Word both the writing of Esther as well as its inclusion in the Bible, these were things that were divinely superintended. Esther is part of Scripture because God wanted it to be so, which means that even if God's presence in these pages, even if it isn't immediately apparent to us, He is nevertheless there. He is present. He is active in this story. It also means that evidence of His divine activity, it must be discernible to us as His people. And the second thing to remember is, as you begin to study the book of Esther is this, it's important for us to remember that it is a good thing, indeed it is a healthy thing for us to be challenged to look for God. In fact, it is an upbuilding thing for us to be called for us to be challenged to seek Him out, even if that requires us learning to, to shift our focus so that we see Him and we see the work that He's doing from a slightly different perspective. And in this respect, we need to see that, that studying the book of Esther, it's going to push us. It's going to stretch us as God's people, and so it's going to encourage us it will encourage us to mature. It will encourage us to grow as believers. And that's not something that we should be afraid of. That's something that we should welcome. Indeed, it is something to get excited about. Now, as we've noted, the challenge of finding God in this text, the challenge of locating Him here in these words, it's a challenge that we face right from the outset. From the very first verse, we as readers, 
We aren't just lifted out of the the context of our immediate circumstances here in Ancaster this morning. No, we are lifted right up out of a covenant context entirely. And what we discover as we work our way through this chapter is that we've been plopped down right in the middle of a very ancient and of a very pagan society. And we find ourselves, we find ourselves engaged with the ancient kingdom of Persia, and we find ourselves encountering this kingdom at a time when it was at the height of its power and glory. And it's worth noting, brothers and sisters, that the Persian Empire was really kind of a big deal. In terms of its size, this was a kingdom that stretched all the way from Ethiopia in Africa all the way to the far eastern borders of India. And it wasn't just a a massive empire in terms of its geography. It was an empire that was unprecedented in terms of its wealth and unprecedented in terms of its power. It is no exaggeration to say that the Persian Empire is one of the greatest empires. It is one of the most powerful and most illustrious kingdoms in world history. Now, at the time that these events occurred, that empire was ruled by a man named Xerxes. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, we just read the text and and didn't the Bible say that his name was Ahasuerus? Well, here's the thing, Ahasuerus was his Persian name, but in the context of the Greek world, he was known as Xerxes. And frankly, Xerxes is just a lot easier to say than Ahasuerus, and I have to say that name a lot of times, so we're going with Xerxes, right? This is what we're going to do. Xerxes it is. Now, as the ruler of this massive empire, Xerxes, he could legitimately lay claim to being the most powerful man in the world. And what we have read this morning in Esther chapter 1, it opens a window. It gives us a bit of a glimpse of what it was like to live in his kingdom. Now, what we have to understand, however, is that there is there's more than just a window into the past. There's more than just a window into history that's being opened here. No, these verses, they show us something. They teach us something about who God is, and they teach us something about how it is that God views the kingdoms of men. But in order to appreciate that, we've got to, we've got to shift our focus. We need to approach this text from a different angle. Now, normally as God's people, when we approach a, a text like Esther 1, we ask ourselves this question. We say, where is it that I can see God working in this passage? This morning, however, I'd like to suggest that we, we tweak that question a little bit, that we change it. And instead, we ask ourselves this question, how can I hear God working in this passage? And I say that because God is most certainly present in these verses, but we are only going to be able to find Him here if we learn to listen for the sound of His laughter, because that is precisely what is happening in these verses here in Esther 1 we are hearing God laugh. In the words of our passage, they fairly ring with the sound of that laughter. Do you know what, brothers and sisters? It's not just that we can hear Him laughing in these verses. He wants us to laugh right along with Him. 
Now, I realize at this point that you might be thinking, is that actually appropriate? Can we speak of God laughing? And is our laughter an appropriate response to the reading of His Word? Are we really allowed to, to read Scripture, and are we allowed to laugh? Well, brothers and sisters, those are fair questions. Let's start with the first of them. Can we speak of God laughing? Does God have a sense of humor, so to speak? Well, we read from Psalm 2 this morning, and what did we read there in that psalm? There the psalmist speaks very clearly to us about how the Lord God Almighty does indeed laugh. Now, of course, it, it could be argued that as you read through Psalm 2 that, that what's being spoken of here is God's scorn and God's derision rather than a genuine sense of humor. But it is important to remember what it is that gives birth to, what it is that arouses God's scorn and derision. Well, it is, it is generated by the vanity. It's generated by the inanity of the nations. What is it that causes God to laugh in Psalm 2? It is precisely the comical assertion of the power of the nations that provokes His laughter. There's a sense of buffoonery in Psalm 2 as the nations mass their power and as they set their strength in opposition to the strength of the Almighty God. It is this comical, it is this insane comparison that provokes the laughter of the Lord. And in terms of Esther inspiring our laughter, is it appropriate for us to laugh? Can we read God's Word and respond in laughter? Well, we can if that is an appropriate response. We can if that is the response that God Himself intends to provoke, and brothers and sisters, that is most certainly the case here. Now, brothers and sisters, as we look at this first chapter of Esther, we need to establish a, a principle that's foundational to thinking about the whole book, and that principle is this, Esther is a satire. In terms of its genre, in terms of its style, in terms of what it is that Esther is meant to accomplish, this book is a satire. And the whole point of a satire is to provoke laughter, and you do it by means of ridicule and irony. And that's because the ultimate goal of a satire is to expose. Satires, they expose vice and stupidity. And crucially, it's important to realize that satires are most often used in a political context. Simply put, satires are a means of exposing the weakness. They are a means of exposing the limitation and the immorality of political leaders and institutions, and they do that by giving us reasons to laugh at those same institutions and leaders. Esther, then, is a satire. Well, in terms of finding humor in these verses, Let's start by focusing on the features of this passage that are not obviously funny to us, but which would have been immediately humorous to the folks who were the very first readers of Esther. I want you to imagine that you could travel back generations in time and that the book of Esther was hot off the presses 
and you were the very first person to read it. If you were the first people to read this book, you would have immediately noticed some things about this that would have provoked your laughter. You see, when they started to read this book, the very first readers of Esther, they knew something very important. There was something that was common knowledge to them, but that which thousands of years later isn't common knowledge to us anymore. And what they knew, what they knew was how this story ended. And when I say that they knew how the story ended, I'm, I'm not referring to the book of Esther itself. The story that they knew the ending to was the story of Xerxes' life. You see, when they started to read this book, they, like us, they would have read about the incredible feast that Xerxes had prepared. This feast that Scripture tells us lasts for 187 days. And they would have read about how Xerxes, how he invited all the most powerful and influential political and military leaders of his kingdom to join him at that feast. And the first readers of this book, they would have understood that Xerxes, he had thrown this party for a very particular reason. You see, he had invited all of these folks to come to Susa, and he was showing them the wealth and the splendor of his kingdom, and he was doing so because he had every intention of expanding his kingdom. He wanted to make his kingdom bigger. He wanted to make it more wealthy. He wanted to make it more powerful. You see, what Xerxes wanted to do, he wanted to push the borders of his kingdom westward. He wanted to do that by conquering the kingdom of Greece. He wanted to destroy the Greeks, and he wanted to incorporate their territories into his kingdom. But here is the critical part. In order to accomplish that goal, he needed the financial and he needed the military support of both the Persian nobility and the armies. And so he'd invited the, the whole lot of them to come to Susa, and there he attempted to wine and dine them into supporting him. In effect, we need to realize that this banquet that Xerxes holds, it was a kind of sales pitch. He was saying to them, if you're willing to support me in achieving my goals, then you can be sure that you will be handsomely rewarded. And look at all of the wealth of my kingdom. Look at all of the gold and the silver and the purple and the tile mosaics. Look at all the wealth that I already possess and realize that that is a guarantee that investing in me will be a good business decision. And so he'd invited them. He'd invited them to come to, to essentially see his personal might, to see his personal splendor as a kind of sales pitch. We need to understand that this was a calculated display of personal wealth. The fine clothing, the gold, the dishes, everything was intended to inspire confidence in Xerxes himself. And the selling point is this, if he could make himself rich, surely he had the capacity to make other people rich as well. Now, brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Here's the thing that the first readers of Esther knew. Here's what was common knowledge to them. Not only did they understand what Xerxes was trying to do when he threw this feast, they also understand that all of his efforts had ended in failure. 
Xerxes' efforts to conquer the Greeks had come to nothing. Xerxes would actually launch a series of campaigns against the Greeks, and all of them came to naught. The Greeks, they fought back the Persian advance, though narrowly at times, and they succeeded at halting the expansion of Persian power. And when we remember that this is a satire, we now begin to see some of the humor in our text. The most powerful man on earth could not make good on his promises to his supporters. Xerxes had promised them a greater and a more glorious Persia, and what he gave them was defeat. Truly, to borrow a phrase from Proverbs, Xerxes' pride had gone before his destruction. And the extent of that destruction, it hadn't just been Persian, it had also been personal. Because again, the first readers of Esther, they knew something else that we don't know. They know that Xerxes' defeat, they hadn't just diminished Persian power, Xerxes' defeat would also cost him his life. Did you notice, as we read through the chapter this morning, all of the emphasis that gets placed on Xerxes' eunuchs and on his advisors? Our text actually even mentions these men by name. And there's a very important detail in verse 14. If you look at verse 14, we're told there that there were seven advisors who were allowed to see the king's face. That meant that these men, they had the king's absolute trust. So much so that they were given the privilege of coming into his presence without having been summoned. And that privilege of coming into the king's presence without having been called, that was a privilege that they were the only seven men in the whole of this vast empire who enjoyed. We know from what will come later that Esther, right? Esther, she says to, ultimately to Mordecai, like, if I come into the king's presence without having been called, you understand that I'll be killed. And this isn't metaphorical. The Persian kings would actually have a soldier standing beside their throne with an actual axe, as, as Xerxes is sitting on his throne, there is a soldier beside him who is literally ready to dispatch anyone who comes into the king's presence without having been called. And so, these seven men, these seven advisors, they are the only ones who can come into the throne room. And this is so important because years later, after his failed campaigns against the Greeks, Xerxes is going to be assassinated. He's going to be assassinated by some of his closest advisors. In fact, and this is deliciously ironic given the details of our text, Xerxes is going to be assassinated by two men, by the captain of his bodyguard and by one of his chief eunuchs. The man whom Xerxes had most trusted to keep him safe aided and abetted by one of the men who managed his royal harem, they will stab him to death in his own bed. And brothers and sisters, that is the literal definition of irony. And all of this, all of this is why the very first readers of this text, they would have laughed as they read this opening chapter as they read about the glory, as they read about the splendor of this kingdom, as they were told about Xerxes strutting around proud as a peacock, they would have read these verses and they would have said to themselves, oh Xerxes, if only you knew what was coming. 
Now, brothers and sisters, that is some history-based humor. But even if that wasn't obvious to us, the buffoonery that is described in this chapter would still give us plenty of reasons to laugh out loud. Consider Xerxes' behavior, for instance. We might assume that a man who ruled a kingdom that was this large, that was this glorious, that he would be a man of some intelligence, that he would be a man of some distinction and character. We might even dare to hope that a man who held the welfare of millions of people in his hands, that he might be a wise ruler, one who possessed a sense of duty and honor, a man who wore the crown with a sense of, of gravity and, and significance. But that's not the man that Xerxes turns out to be. In fact, the first time that we meet him in this story, he's drunk. And in his inebriated state, he decides that the best way to bring this six-month-long feast to an end would be to summon his wife Vashti and to display her before the leering eyes of, of his nobles and of his military commanders like the trophy wife he so clearly believed her to be. And when Vashti refuses to be exploited this way, how does Xerxes respond? He throws a tantrum. Then in his enraged and drunken state, he turns to other people for guidance on how to handle this situation. And having done so, this, this mighty ruler, he is promptly manipulated into making what can only be described as an absolutely inane decree. He's manipulated by counselors who are clearly projecting their own fears and their own worries onto these circumstances. I mean, seriously. As you read through this text, you've got to wonder about the state of Memekin's marriage. Given the head-scratching leap that he makes from the rebellion of one woman to the complete overturn of Persian norms in the social empire, I'm betting he is the one who was feeling browbeaten on the home front. The point is that as we read through this chapter, we discover a king who lacks intelligence. We discover a king who lacks self-discipline. We discover a king who can't govern his kingdom, who can't manage his own family. We discover a king who can't even control his own appetites and emotions. And this is the man who is the most powerful ruler on earth. And that is simply a laughable state of affairs. Critically, however, what's true of Xerxes at an individual level proves to be true of the kingdom as a whole. It's not just Xerxes' power that ultimately ends up being laughable. It's Persian power as well. And that becomes clear when we, consider to take a mo or when we take a moment to consider the legal developments that are recorded in this passage. The first evidence of legal absurdity comes to us early in this chapter. Take a look for a moment at what's said in verse 8. Look at verse 8 of this chapter. What does verse 8 say? And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. Now stop and think about that for a moment. They made a law telling people that there was no law. They made a law telling people that they could behave however they wanted to behave. A law to say 
that you can do whatever you want because there is no law. And what do we learn about the seriousness of those laws? Well, we're told that the laws that are, that are promulgated by Persian kings, that they were thought to be of such wisdom, they were thought to be of such weight and importance, that once those laws had been spoken, they could never be revoked. These laws couldn't be undone even by the ruler who had issued them. And knowing that makes Vashti's refusal to heed the command of the king to come, it makes her refusal not just shocking, it makes it comical. Because when Vashti refuses to come before Xerxes when she's called, she shows that while the laws of the mighty Persian kings couldn't be revoked, they could just be ignored. Vashti says, well, you've made a law and that's great and nobody can change it, but I ain't coming. She just ignores the law. And think about how Xerxes and his advisors, how they end up responding to Vashti's refusal. Xerxes turns to his advisors, and he points out that by refusing to come when she was called, that Vashti had broken the law. And how collectively do they decide to solve this problem? Well, their solution is to enact a law that forbade people from breaking the law. They said, basically, we are making a law that makes the law unbreakable. And that's the kind of plan that's going to be about as effective as a British police officer yelling stop or I will yell stop again. And perhaps the single most ludicrous and the most laughable element of this entire situation is how their solution to this problem ends up accomplishing the very things that they're trying to avoid. Remember what their primary concern is. They're worried that if the other women of the empire hear about Vashti's refusal, that they'll be motivated to rebel themselves. And so how do they solve this problem? By writing a law in the language of every empire and sending that law to every province in the empire, telling the entire empire about precisely what it is that Vashti had done. Honestly, if Twitter had been a thing in those days, the hashtag YouGoGirl would immediately have started trending on Persian social media. You can laugh. It's all right. You're allowed. The point, beloved, the point is that by the time we get to the end of this first chapter, we have been given plenty of reason to laugh at the absurdity of it all. And what we need to see is that this is intentional. God wants us to laugh at this situation. And he wants us to laugh at these circumstances because that is precisely how he responds to these events. And that leads us to think for a few moments about why this should be so. Why does God provoke us to laughter? To what end have we been made to laugh at the absurdity of the Persians and their power? Well, first of all, the Lord leads us to laughter as a way of setting us free from fear. Let me say that again. The Lord leads us to laughter as a way of setting us free from fear. That is, after all, what satires do. They take something that is frightening and they strip it of its power by making it laughable. And that is what the Lord has done here by satirizing Persian power. And he does this because he understands 
how easily we can become frightened by the might and by the power of men. He understands that when we are confronted by displays of human power, we can be tempted to conclude that it is people like Xerxes who are ultimately in control of our lives. And the fear, the fear of what they can do to us, the fear of what they can take from us, the fear of the control that they can exert over us, well, that is a fear that can cause our hearts not just to quake, that is a fear that can cause our hearts to break. And the Lord does not want His people to live in fear. And so here in the pages of His Word, He says to us, come here for a moment, my child. Come here for a moment and stand with me. Stand with me above time. Stand with me outside of history because I want you to see things the way I see things. Let me show you how the power and the pretensions of men, how they look when they are viewed from a heavenly perspective. And be assured that once that you have seen things from this angle, once you have seen things the way I see things as I sit upon my throne, then you will understand why laughter rather than fear is an appropriate response. But there's more here. There's more here than just an antidote to fear. Because here in these verses, the Lord does not just encourage us to laugh, He encourages us to compare. He takes the whole of the Persian Empire, and He uses that Persian Empire as a stand-in for all the kingdoms of men. It doesn't matter whether it's the Romans, it doesn't matter whether it's the Greeks, it doesn't matter whether it's the Egyptians, the Americans, the Russians, the Iranians, it doesn't matter. He takes that Persian kingdom, he says this is a stand-in for the kingdoms of earth, and then he says compare its glory, compare its riches, compare its power to the might and to the splendor and to the power of my heavenly kingdom. Look at Xerxes, God says, and then look at me. Consider what you have learned about the laughable limits of his wisdom and power, and then contrast that with my wisdom and power, and then ask yourself, who should I fear? And while you're at it, God says, while you're at it, consider these questions as well. Where is Xerxes now? Where is his kingdom? What have all of his schemes and his machinations amounted to? Isn't it true that Xerxes lies moldering in his grave? Isn't it true that this mighty kingdom has been consigned to the pages of history? And yet here I am, still ruling from on high as the almighty God, and not a single one of my plans has come to nothing. What about Xerxes' people? Where are Xerxes' counselors? Where are his eunuchs? Where are his soldiers and his family and his friends? Haven't they suffered the same fate as he has? But where are my people? Haven't they endured? Haven't they been kept safe against all the threats of this world? Haven't they been comforted and cared for in both life and death? And isn't it in fact the case that all of my people are still living 
and that not one of them has been lost. And yet even here, beloved, there is still more comfort to be had. Because the ultimate point of all of this laughing and all of this comparing, it is to fill us with longing. The point here, as we read about this chapter, and as we see the limitations and the laughability of Xerxes' power, the point is to make us to long, to long for a true king who will govern us graciously, a true king who will govern us justly and lovingly, a king who won't exploit us for his personal gain, but a king who is willing to give up everything that he has in the service of his people. We are being made to long for a king who won't just exercise authority over us, but a king who will identify with us and who will live with us. And the amazing thing about our God is how unlike Xerxes he is. Xerxes had promised power. He promised glory. He had promised a greater Persia. He'd given them defeat. But God doesn't work like that. He doesn't stoke our hopes and our dreams only to turn around and to fail to make good on what He's promised, which means, brothers and sisters, that He doesn't just fuel our desires to be raised, to be ruled by a good and gracious king. He also provides the very king that we long for. And He did when He sent His own well-beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, into this world. Our Lord, He certainly came as a prophet. He came proclaiming the way of repentance and salvation. And He came as a priest, a priest who who would save a people for Himself by offering Himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin on the cross. But He also came as a king. He came as a king who was building a kingdom unlike any other kingdom. Because the kingdom that he's building is an eternal kingdom, and it is a kingdom of truth. It is a kingdom of light. It is a kingdom of justice and peace. And what is remarkable about that kingdom is that just like Xerxes' kingdom, it will also be characterized by a conspicuous absence. But the absence in the kingdom of the Lord will be the absence of sorrow. It will be the absence of grief, the absence of sin, and the absence of death. One day, one day when He has gathered His people to Himself, our Lord and Savior, He is also going to host a banquet. And those who are gathered at His table, they will only be able to stare in awe. They will only be able to stare in wonder at the inestimable riches of His kingdom. But do you know, brothers and sisters, do you know what the most wondrous part of that day will be? Do you know what the most incredible thing will be about that day when we are gathered in His kingdom at His banquet table? It will be when the king rises from his seat and he rises to address his subjects and he says to them, Behold, all that you see, all the glory, all the riches, all the wealth, all the splendor that your eyes behold, Behold, all that you see is yours, for you are co-heirs with me, and my inheritance has become your inheritance. And look, 
look, I have a gift for each and every one of you, and that gift is a crown, a crown that can be worn upon your brow, for you are to be kings and queens with me, and together we will rule the nations. Amen.